Okay, um, this is amazing. I've got a special guest today, R&B sensation Tony Terry, and um, definitely looking forward to this interview. And I hope you guys enjoy our interview with him. Oh, this will be great then. Yeah, lots to say. Yeah, that's going to be great. But I think we're starting off because our audience is international as well. Um, I love, I'm, we know you're from the U.S., but what, what part were you sort of born and raised? I was born in North Carolina. In a, okay. In, uh, Southern Pines, North Carolina, which is a golf town. It's actually a, one of the premier golf cities in the world. And pretty much everybody who is anybody in the golf world, they uh, come through there to play or they have a home there. And... Uh, and it's really quite funny that I do not play golf. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> and uh, but being from North Carolina, I mean, when it comes to sort of with stuff with music, was there any inspiration about music around you in those days? Um, yeah, church. <laughs> okay. Um, almost daily because my grandmother was, um, I wouldn't say radical, but she was very much committed to her spiritual journey and so we we spent a lot of time in church and she was also my inspiration because she she walked around the house singing you know while cleaning or cooking and she had a beautiful voice and uh and she encouraged me to sing i, I probably stood by my grandma and she, she taught me a few things she taught me how to cook okay yeah. I, I stood by my grandmother's side while she cooked and baked and and i learned how to cook and bake and you know from scratch and i, I take pride in having that and that it came from my grandmother. You know, it's interesting because I, from those of us who, who aren't in the U.S., there's the, the lot of the perception we have is you've got so much things like basketball, football, um, baseball, and, and sports generally would dominate. Um, but for you, you said singing became more of, of an inspiration and a, and a vessel more so than anything else? Yeah. I mean, you know, I played... I played sports as a kid, you know, out in the streets with my friends in the neighborhood. But music was really um, always my calling and I knew it. Like I never had to figure out what I was gonna do with my life. I just continued to do what I, what I do and that's sing. And it has, the, the next thing that happened and the next thing that happened seemed like, seemed like the, the next logical thing that would happen yeah. in my careers as I was growing into it from show to show from audition to audition and finally getting into the Duke Ellington School of the Arts uh, uh, as a junior in high school it, it just seemed like you know I never I, I didn't have to figure it out I didn't what am I gonna do with my life I don't, I don't have to do any of that uh, what, what do you mean did, did, did it just did, were doors just opening without you having to go looking for them okay um Okay, so I'm going to, so I, I was a student at the Duke Ellington School of the Arts. And at the time, um, the founders of the school were still alive and very much involved in the everyday running of the school. And Mike Malone, one of the founders, became a friend of mine. And, and every summer we would do, there was a program called the Summer Youth Employment Program that the mayor of D.C. had started, Mayor Marion Barry. And because of that program, oh, yeah, he was one of DC's favorite mayors, even yeah. with all the troubles that he had. Yeah, yeah. Um, even if he if he were alive today, he'd probably be mayor of DC. <laughs> um, 
uh, while I was doing that program, and that's really where we got the fundamental um, basics about what it what was what it was going to require. You know, the rehearsal, the rehearsal time, the dedication. We're going to do it until we get it right, and we're not leaving until we get it right. All that kind of attitude. Um, my third summer, which was my last summer that I, after that I aged out of the program. It was the last summer that I could do the program and I was a senior in high school. And Mike Malone, who we highly revered, came to me and put his hand on my shoulder at the end of that summer and said, you are ready. You can go with my blessing to New York. And I thought I had been blessed by the king. <laughs> I mean, I really <laughs> felt like if Mike Malone says that I'm ready, then I'm ready. And and which was funny because when I auditioned for the school initially, he didn't want me in. Oh, he didn't think he didn't think I was ready. But there was there was um, a, a lady there who also later became one of my friends. She said, "Yeah, but the boy can sign." <laughs> <laughs> and and I got in. And so so Mike gave me his blessing. I didn't. Leave, I graduated high school in 1982. I didn't leave DC until 1984 when I was working a regular job. And I heard about an audition that Mike Malone was having in New York, in New Jersey at the Crossroads Theater, which is a premier, one of the premier black theaters in the country. And I quit my job when I heard about the audition. Because, you know, <laughs> Mike would be, was the one doing it. Yeah, but I didn't know that didn't necessarily, that wasn't an automatic that I was going to be in okay. because he was doing it. But I just quit my job. <laughs> wow. I quit my job. I, and I, did, I didn't do it in a way that would allow me to come back. I, and I was the manager at that point. Uh, I told my assistant, you're the boss. And he was like, what are you talking about? I said, I'm out. I'm out. He said, what do you mean out? I'm saying I'm never coming back. <laughs> and I left, I left, we drove up to New Jersey, did the audition and my cousin and I, and we both were cast. We both were cast in the show. But the, th the thing was that I had no idea of what the pay was going to be. So it turns out the pay was $35 a week. Okay. Um, and nobody can survive off of $35. Okay. Not even in 84. <laughs> <laughs> Not even in 84. And so that, that required us to have to live in the theater that we were working in. Oh. So I slept under my dressing room table for six months. Wow. Which was fine. I mean, I was I was having the time of my life. We were having the time of our lives. It was it's a time that I would not go back and change any part of because it really it was like paying my dues. Like I was paying my dues, and I knew that that's what was happening. But we were having the time of our lives, so it was it was really great. Um, that show was over. Oh, so while we were rehearsing for the show, one of the band members um, came over to me at probably about maybe a month in. And he said, I don't know about these other guys, but you are a star. Wow. I know I, I never really picked, thought that of myself and no one had ever said that to me before. And I thought, what do you mean? <laughs> He's like, you, you got it. You have the, that it thing that's going to take you there. And I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> but, but then the show was over. And by, by, that, by the time the show was over, he and I, Daryl Mull is his name. And he's a... Um, New Yorkian, black Puerto Rican guy from Harlem, very high energy, typical New York energy. Yeah. And after the show was over, 
I, I started working on some music with him. And uh, we, we, wrote a, we wrote a demo together, a song called Don't Hold Out. And, uh, and then I, <laughs> I was kind of on the fence about whether I'm gonna stay in New York or go back to DC. And I uh, wasn't really feeling good about my time. I had, had auditioned for this one particular show, Mama, I Wanna Sing, which is the longest black running, the longest off-Broadway show in off-Broadway history. Mm. And, and so I had done the show for a while. I was kind of ready to go back, but a few days before I was scheduled to go back, we went out to check out a band. Checked out the band, the band was good. And afterwards the place was packed. There was, it was so packed, there was not even, it was a fire hazard, not yeah. even room. There was not even enough space if somebody were to fall or there wasn't room for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the band leader came afterwards because he was a friend of Daryl. He was like, yo, what did y'all think? And you know, I'm young and cocky. <laughs> and I say, uh, no, y'all were y'all, y'all were all right. <laughs> you you had one crucial element that was missing though that would have really made it pop. He said, What's that? I said, Me. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> you started to believe in yourself now. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started, he said, he said, okay, here's your time. Here's your time to shine. So I started singing for him in this crowded room and there was a gentleman standing behind me that I wasn't even aware that was behind me. And he turned around, I guess he heard me and he said, he, he goes, where did, where did you come from? And I'm sure I said something sarcastic. And he, he gave me his card, introduced himself as Ted Courier. And I held on to his card for about two weeks. But when I did call him, it was about 11 PM, which is not unusual for a musician, especially if you're working. And he was excited to hear from me and was wondering why, why it took so long for me to call him. And he was in the studio in New York. I was staying in New Jersey at this point. He was in the studio at Unique, Unique Recording on 47th and 7th. And he invited me over. So I had to get on the bus, get on the PATH train, get on the subway, and then walk up to the studio. And when I got there, he had Parliament Funkadelic. George Clinton. And I was like, what? <laughs> George Clinton, a part of that, I suppose. Was no, there. No, yeah, George wasn't there. Okay. He, okay. But, but he is part of, uh, uh, but we, he had Gary Cooper. You remember the guy that wore the, uh, the diaper, played bass? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Gary yeah. Scheider, okay. um, uh, who became a really good friend of mine. He was there, uh, Michael Cooper, you know, several of the other notable the, yeah. players, but uh, George was not there. But they were recording and they were working on a, they were working on a project for the Boogie Boys. And the Boogie Boys had, just come off of a fly girl, fly girl, fly girl. Right, it was a big hit record for them in the 80s. And they were working on the follow-up to that. So I meet Daryl there and I was blown away that uh, Parliament was there. But side note, I learned what funk music was all about because okay. <laughs> they didn't smell too good. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> the truth. <laughs> and it's it's about and the, so the punk music is a real thing. It's, it came from that. They wouldn't bathe wow. for days. Oh, they wouldn't bathe <laughs> for days. Oh, goodness, <laughs> they did. <laughs> and so my friend Daryl, in his New York cocky way, was like, "Yo, Ted, if you put my boy Tony in the booth, you'll fire all them jokers." <laughs> and Ted Ted was Ted was like, "Oh, really?" Of course, he had just smoked a, a joint about the size of a thumb. <laughs> and 
He was like, okay. And then he called whoever was in the booth out. I don't remember who it was, but he sent me in. And then they started giving me parts to do on this record. And I was nailing him. One take, boom. He started calling me one take Tony. And I, it happened so fast. Uh, while I was working on that project, well, he did fire, he did fire Parliament. He fired them. And I, I ended up doing the vocals on that project. So while I was recording, his wife and partner asked me to come into this room and sing for this group of people that were there that I was unaware of who they were. And I was already recording, I was warmed up. So I walked into the room and sang for them. And I sang uh, Ribbon in the Sky. And when I left that room, they offered me a seven album deal, just like that. And I was not, I didn't even have time to prepare. I wasn't nervous because I didn't know who I was. I didn't know that they were Capitol Records. I didn't know that I was auditioning. I didn't, I was just singing. And so it turned into that. I got a seven album deal on Capitol Records. And the gentleman who was responsible for me at the, in the A&R department was fired soon after I got signed. And you know, the music business is an ego driven business. So the next guy who replaced him was not really interested in me because he didn't sign me. He yeah. was interested in making his mark by signing and discovering mm -hmm. his own acts. And so the gentleman that was fired was hired at Epic and he convinced Epic Records uh, over at Sony to buy my contract from Capitol. And all this happened before I sang a note. Okay, now that, that if, uh, yes. I wanted to get back a little bit to the fact that you were in, in theater Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I would assume that there's a difference in the theater type of work and, and were you thinking career-wise, Broadway and stuff, or did you just think recording artists in, in, in those early days? At that time, I didn't have a focus, like what it was going to be specifically. Yeah. Because growing up, I had done some recording, I'd done some theater work. I liked it all. Um, there were things that I learned um, fundamentally in theater that would apply to, let's say, doing a concert every night. Um, and so I just it didn't really, it was kind of like whatever, whatever one paid the most, <laughs> okay. whatever gig, whatever gig, which, whichever one's check cleared first is the one I'm gonna do. Um, but I mean, in those so, days though, did, did, did you get to know the, um, because as I said, with, with the theater, it looks as if the those in theater work a lot harder, um, but don't get as paid and uh, uh, as much as say recording. But for yourself, it was just the experience, the just the f things moving so quickly. Listen, um, the theater world is much more work. When I was doing Mama, I Want to Sing, yeah. which was a two and a half hour show. Wow. We did 10 shows a week, 10. Wow. And, uh, and we would do three, three of those 10 shows would happen on Saturday. Wow. So by Saturday night, we, you would be completely spent. But we were, we were young, 21, 22. Yeah. You know, you could do three shows and then go out to the club. And okay. then, <laughs> um, which we did a few times. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the experience, you know, the, the work ethic, I had yeah. already gotten from being a student at Duke Ellington. So oh, it, wasn't okay. that much, it wasn't that challenging. Um, I think the, I think the theater work is, it might be a little bit more difficult in, in terms of, let me use, let me use Shakespeare as an example, cause it's something that everybody knows about. And it's a piece that it's a period piece, but 
you can't improv Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. You have to do the lines as yeah. they are written. You yeah. can't change anything. Otherwise, you're not doing Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And the difference in like doing a concert or whatever is that I have the liberty to talk about something differently every night. I have the liberty to change my song up a little bit if I want to. Yeah. I have the li- you know, those liberties, liberties that I don't have doing legit theater. Yeah. Uh, and so I got to appreciate both mediums for the differences that they ha- that they have. Um, so I, once I once I got settled in my recording situation, I was signed to the label with Michael Jackson, Luther Vandross, Tina Marie, um, Mariah Carey was on the other side across the hall at Columbia, and I was this new kid that they spent all this money on and didn't know what to do with. Didn't had not figured out what my lane was going to be. And so I just started recording and, and I started recording. And the last song that I worked on for my first album came about because I ran into a, one of my high school friends in New York while I was just taking a break. Yeah. And I hadn't seen him since high school. He was a theater student, but he told me he had started writing songs and I asked him to play one for me at that point. And he played a song for me and it was She's Fly, my first single. Oh, so yeah. I'm, I'm, I was so excited. I went, I took him back to the studio. I was like, Ted, we, we have to do this. Ted, Ted Currier's claim to fame, he has many. He was the first DJ to do live mixes on radio in New York wow. on 92KTU back in the um, maybe late, early, early, uh, late 70s, early 80s. And he produced Atomic Dog for George Clinton. Wow. He produced, um, he produced uh, music by a group called Black Britain. Um, um, he produced many, 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 many hit records, yeah. many hit projects that he was involved in. And so we were working on the album. Um, I, I told him that, you know, George had written this song and I played it for him. We got to cut it. And he, he got excited and we cut it. Well, I had the, I had the flu, <laughs> funny. And I started, started working on the song. And the first line is, hey, you got me jumping. Your big but beautiful body is showing up bumping. That was the, supposed to be the line. Yeah. But I said, hey, you got me jumping. Your bu- 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 beautiful body is showing up. <laughs> and, and I was, and Ted was like, that's it. Oh, no, that's it. We keep it. I was like, no, 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 no. That was a, <laughs> that was a mistake. I didn't mean to do that. He was like, if you think I'm erasing that, you're out of your mind. This ain't Shakespeare. (laughs) And so we kept it. And that was the first line of the show, of the song. And it ended up being the first single from the album that just kicked the doors in. Now, I mean, you. I mean, I'm sure your grandma would be would would say, "No, I've been playing for you from day one, so I'm not surprised how quickly everything has gone for you." But you're talking about getting a recording contract with Epic Records. I mean, that's that's you know, they had Michael Jackson, they had all these big stars. Was it not overwhelming? Did 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 you understand the sort of the contracts they're sending sending you and royalties and all that stuff? Or was you just sign and sing? I mean, what, what was that like? I... I didn't know Jack Squat. <laughs> I didn't have a mentor. I know no one helped me navigate. Yeah. I was young, and which is why I think it's so important to educate people and you know and, and give the information because most people in the music business, well, 
the music business has a reputation of being filled with crooks and snakes and people that don't really care about you. Yeah. And I found that in a lot of ways to be true. Yeah. Uh, because I, uh, I, I, I side with the company. I'm not saying anything derogatory about Ted Curry because he was not one of those people. He, he, he did and does care. I, I, in fact, I stay in touch with him. Mm. Um, but there were people that were on his team that I began, that, that early on, right away, began to treat me as if I were family and made me feel very at ease and comfortable and began to shower me with gifts. I, later on, found out that I paid for all those. <laughs> <laughs> they wasn't gifts at all. I was buying my own stuff. And if I knew that, then I would have got the one that I really wanted. Yeah, um, yeah. Of whatever it was. Like I had the biggest boom box that a person could have <laughs> and have it on your show, you know, that you could carry around. I had a, I had a, the first, the first dual sided Sony Walkman. Oh, okay. Um, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, just like, just, just gifts, 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 gifts. I was like, oh, okay, I'll take it. And, um, and I was paying for that stuff. I didn't, I didn't realize we were taking trips up to upstate New York to go fishing. And I was paying for that too. Wow. And I didn't realize it. And, you know, the, the more I, the more I learned, the less interested they were, they were in having me be involved. Hmm. Um, because you know I know more now you can't really pull the wool over my eyes but th they did I got I got got a few times and uh, one of those uh, an another way that I got got was that I signed a publishing deal with EMI that I didn't know I was signing and I got it was a it was a quarter million dollar deal and I got ten thousand dollars and I didn't know I didn't know and I was happy to get that ten thousand dollars yeah <laughs> but I didn't know that I, there was another uh you know, $240,000 to be had. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you know, know, those kinds of things. And so I just think it's important that, you know, people know that if they're going to get involved in this or any other business, yeah. that they, they do, them, do themselves a service by understanding business and then having someone around you in your corner yeah. at every meeting you go to that cares about you. Yeah. I think one of the hard things for me is as much as I enjoyed talking with yourselves and, and early other artists is hearing this, the same type of stories that have happened to now mainly the black artists because I'm yeah, talking yeah. to R&B artists, but it's very heartbreaking to find out how people know what they're doing, taking advantage of, of young, inspiring acts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, they, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like the, it's like if you come to them and you don't know anything about yeah. this business, you are perfect. Yeah. Well. <laughs> and they saw dollar signs. <laughs> in fact, the dollar signs were so vivid to them that I could see the dollar signs in their eyes. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, and it just, it just, it was good. It was good when it was good. Yeah. But when it, but when it began to spiral, was because I knew more. I knew too much. Yeah. And then you couldn't, you couldn't play me as easily. And that's what I've been hearing from others is that you almost have to know enough that they don't know that you know, but you know enough to be to be guarded, but not to let them know that you've caught on to what they're doing. Um, but before we get to that, it'd be good just to go through the process of your first album, because what was that like then recording your first album? You've got your, your good friend who writes the first single, the first mm -hmm. release single, but the rest of the album, what was that like? Were you involved in writing um, I was. in the production and everything? Okay. I was, I was. Um, uh, I, Ted trusted my, what I brought, you know, as, as an artist, as a singer, um, he trusted me. And, but on the other side, this was, 
during the analog days. So we had no, we had, we didn't have the digital machines to fix problems and correct things. So we had to do them right. They had to be right. Mm. And Ted was a very strident. He was, he was, he, we did it until it was right. Wow. So I learned how to do vocal production absolutely correctly. Like I, I would stack six, six uh, parts of one note, six tracks of one note, and they would be so perfectly matched that there was no rubbing. No, they started at the same time. They stopped at the same time. And it was, you know, I, he gave me that. Wow. Now, nowadays, you know, if you sing, you've seen one of those tracks flat or sharp, yeah. I don't worry about it. We'll fix it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Auto-tune and stuff. They Auto-tune or yeah, yeah, Melodyne yeah. or something and yeah. just fix it. And, right, you know, with today's technology, you can literally take a person who cannot sing <laughs> and make them sound like a singer. You can yeah, do that. I don't want to name names, but that's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, you know and I know, so yeah. we don't need to name no yeah. names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then, in, so when you were recording your album then, um, who were those around? Because you, you, this was probably 87, 88. I, mean, I know that uh, Keith Sweat and I'll be Yeah, sure. it was actually 86. The, the, the album came out October 1987. Okay. And it came out the same week uh, as uh, I'll be sure's first single. Oh, my Keith goodness. Sweat, Keith Sweat had I Wanna. Oh. Um, Tony, Tony, Tony had Hey Little Walter. Oh, my goodness. Um, and I had She's Fly. Um, Johnny Kemp, Johnny Kemp had just got paid. Okay. It was all the same week. Wow. Our records came out the same week. Guy had um, their single. Groove um, Me. Their first, yeah, Groove Me. That came out the same week. How was that like then for you? Did you feel, was, was it was it fun or was it nerve wracking or was it almost like. No, it oh wasn't nerve wracking. No, it wasn't nerve wracking. It was, um, it was fun. It was, I was having the time of my life. I mean, I was, I had my cousin there who I had just recently discovered was my cousin, even though we had worked in different things together, okay. different shows together. I had only recently discovered that he was my cousin. And we, when I found that out, we instantly became best friends. And from there moving forward until he left this earth, he, he worked on everything that I, everything that I worked on. And so I, I, I had somebody with me. Uh, he wasn't around when I signed the deal, um, and I don't know that he knew much more than I did, and would have okay. been able to be of assistance. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a good time. We we enjoyed the process. Yeah. I enjoyed the process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did, did did you have a favorite apart from the fact that she's fly? Did you have a favorite song off your first album that you were like, man, this is it? Well, there was a song. But I, well, Lovey Dovey was the very first song that I ever wrote. And I wrote that song on the subway on the way to my very first recording session, which was not with Ted. It was with another producer, Dr. Bob Kazuri. And I'm, I'm on the one train going from Harlem to downtown. And I'm thinking, what, what am I going to sing? I had no idea. Like, what I'm going to do at this first recording session. I hadn't even met Bob Kazuri yet. So I started writing. Um, it's that lovely, lovely feeling I get with I'm with you. Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean you started writing? Was it, was it, was it, was it that stuff coming to you or? Yeah, it was just coming to me. It was wow. just coming to me. And then, and then I, I was, and I said, and then I started singing. I used to think your love was so, and I'm mumbling it. Your love was so, wow. and I'm, I'm writing the words. Then I said, ah, that's corny. And I tried <laughs> to scratch it. <laughs> 
but the idea wouldn't go away. I just, wow. that's all I could think about was, I used to think that love was so silly, then all that kissing and stuff. That what you do, 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 do. And it just was writing, it just came. And so I got to the studio and I had written the song wow. on the train. And when I got there, the, 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 the producer was working on music and it was the music that ultimately was lovey-dovey. So I knocked on his door, he opened it. I had to wait until he turned off the music because it was so loud. <laughs> and, and I knocked on the door and he opened it and I immediately said, what is that? And he said, oh, this is just something I'm working on for in Vogue. This is not for you. <laughs> I, I said, I said, but I, I just wrote, I was excited. I just, I just wrote this, I just wrote this song on the train and I, I was standing outside the door before I knocked in and it fit like my song fit that music. And he was like, oh, really? Well, well, then let me hear it. So I sang my song to this track and it fit like a glove. And he was like, well, let's record it. He said, it used to be for In Vogue, but they don't have to know. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that was, that turned out to be Lovey Dovey. Yeah. Mike. And then I got, uh, then I got um, David, David Cole um, from CNC Music Factory. Okay. He yeah. did all, he did all of the keyboard work on it. Wow. Did all that stuff and you played played on it and did you know when you when when it was recorded and stuff that wow this is gonna be a big track or did you just what what was the feeling like because it's it, when you're hearing a story that it's just you know I talking to Melvin Riley talking about how he writes a, the song comes into his head and he just did you then feel like this this is going to be a hit because it just popped in my head and the, no, the, everything, okay. I didn't, I, I just, it, we were having a good time and that's what we were doing. I was enjoying the process. I wasn't having foresight. Yeah. I, I wasn't imagining, oh, this is going to be a hit. But Ted would say, you wait, you just wait. This is going to, this whole process, you know, is going to change your life. Wow. I was, and, I, and so I was, I was like, really? Like, I couldn't imagine what what the change would be, you know, and how radical it would be. Yeah. And um, he was like, "Oh man, you want to have the women coming at you?" I was like, <laughs> "I, I am." <laughs> well, then let's get, let's get to getting. And uh, <laughs> and you know, it was it was fun. It really was a good time. The times were good. We were enjoying the process, and I was just letting it happen. And it turned out, you know, some of the songs were not my favorites, but. And I, as a as a as a body of work, I enjoy, I enjoy it. I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed even listening to myself from album to album and hearing the growth, hearing the maturity, and that that was interesting. That's been interesting. Even now, uh, how my new music sounds, or my my voice has matured even more since then. And I'm I'm constantly working on music, but I'm also constantly being a student. A, a voice and learning and I'm still finding out things, realizing things uh, about myself vocally that I'm just discovering and I'm 56. Yeah, oh goodness. You know, the one thing I had to always say that I remember um, because I was born in the UK, but you know, my folks are from Nigeria. So I remember living there for high school then moving to the US for, for college. But when watching you, you, you you have the look of somebody from 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 Nigeria, like you know the light skin, actually from from an Igbo tribe. And I used to used to be one of the only ones who 
who had that sort of sort of I won't say African look, but you had that that sort of look. So you were very different and stood out. Wow. And um, yeah, so I, I always yeah I always look at your video and says, well, he, he could have been. He looks like one of someone wow. from my family and stuff. You know what? When I was in New York, the, I, I apparently looked Dominican <laughs> or Puerto Rican. Oh, uh, yeah, yes, yeah, I can, <laughs> and, Im I can imagine yeah, so. Yeah, and I would, you know, often, often people would just walk up to me and start speaking Spanish. And I'm like, oh, hey, yeah. hey, 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 yeah. no habla español. <laughs> I'm going to need English. I'm going to need English. English, English. <laughs> okay, I, yeah, I can imagine so. But but just as we, I mean, because you you came out in a really fascinating era because you talked about Albie Show, Keith Sweat, and talked about Guy, and that was you know there was a shift in music you know with, with the whole new jack swing and the whole uptown mm -hmm. records you know from that 80 from that 87 to the to the to the early 90s so it was it was a shift in music because prior to that prior to the time when you guys came out it was we were still there was still um i think luther to some extent our r&b music was Either we had the deal and the time uh, and and the gap band and and, right. and 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 stuff. So we had that. That was mainly our black music, you know. Even even Paddy Bell, there were bands and there was sort mm -hmm. of that adult contemporary. So we didn't have a number of young males or females performing uh, singing, and you know, you guys sort of launched the, launched that until we got into into the nineties. But did you guys did you realize? Because when you're thinking, keep sweating, I'll be sure. Who else did you look and see who was in your lane or who were you? Comp who, who was your inspiration when you were coming out in those first couple of years? Um, that's a good question. Um, uh, Jodeci also. Jodeci sang on, they sang background for me. And I didn't have any money. Did you know what I gave them? A chicken dinner. And <laughs> oh, on what track? On Everlasting Love, the remix. What, what, they, got, they each got they each got a two piece chicken dinner and fifty dollars. <laughs> had they had they signed to Uptown by that time or? Uh, they were they were just working on their deal at that time. Oh, are they from they, the, they were, were they from your home your home town state North Carolina? They're from my home state, but I didn't know them. Um, okay, I knew I I knew them uh, because they were a gospel group at, yeah. uh, as children, and uh, I had heard them sing and I was blown away and you know I contacted them and I didn't think. I wasn't even sure that they would do it, but they were like, yeah. I was like, I ain't got no money, <laughs> but I'll take care of you. Are you kidding me? Yeah, they came over and uh, we had a ball and we ate and we sang and I gave them their $50, a crispy $50 bill and they were happy to get it. <laughs> wow. And, <laughs> yeah. but, and but so, were they featured as, did you, did they, did, were they featured as featuring Jodeci or were they, did they have the it name? Was, it was, uh, the remix was um, Everlasting Love Remix. Featuring Jodeci. Wow. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. But then, you know, and that's an amazing story. But I think, did you, could you tell that they were going to do what they were going to do after when you, when they were working with you? Did you think, well, these guys are going to be trendsetters? They were great. They were great. I mean, they were great. And I didn't, you know, I didn't see, I don't, I don't look at it as competition. And a lot of people do. I don't look at it like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna murder the audience tonight. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sing circles around, uh, uh, I'll be sure tonight. Right, I'm gonna tear them up. I don't think yeah. like that. But I have, I know people that do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get them. Yeah. And, and that gets them all pumped up and ready. But I just want, I just wanna be good at what I do. Yeah. So I don't look, I think there's enough of the pie 
for us each to have a slice. Yeah. And so that's how I've always approached it. I'm not in competition with you. Yeah. I'm here to, I'm on the same build as you. So clearly we're not, we're, we're not competing. We are, we are working together. But, but did, did, that's how I always looked at it. But did, and still do. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just wondering, because that, as I said, that's such a, an amazing era that, I mean, this is when music was really, really inspired a lot of us. Were you guys, did, would you, were you guys, um, able to form good friendships you know with those people like Keith and Al on stuff or was it very much the rivalry and like who's going to be <laughs> um that is a good question like we knew each other I worked with Joe to see a lot on the road I worked with I'll be sure a lot on the road I worked with Keith Sweat a lot on the road but you know we all had our own universes if you will and um and people swirling around us so it didn't really allow us the opportunity to forge uh, relationships of our own, to, you know, together. I remember uh, being on the road later in, in, the, in the 90s and uh, early 2000s with um, R. Kelly. And they were in public announcement. Okay. And we worked together a lot. And they would always ask me to hang out. R. Kelly would probably would ask me to hang out every time I saw them. Every time I saw him, and I never did, not once. And I don't know why I was kept away, because clearly there was something going on that we later discovered, yeah. you know, that came out in the wash. And yeah. I've always been, I came from a very spiritual and praying family. Yeah. And I've always felt like I've had a covering, um, a shield of protection around me that was there even when I was um, too foolish, yeah. or too ignorant to realize that I was in a situation that I shouldn't have been in, uh, I was always protected. Well, I yeah. guess whatever whatever the other person's or people's intentions were for me didn't yeah. happen because I'm a child of God and he wouldn't yeah. want that to happen. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> what, did, what did your grandmom think about the fact that you, was she around when you got signed and you, you yeah. came out? What was her thoughts? Yes. Was she was proud of me. She was proud of me because I was using my gift to make a living. Yeah. So you, you you had your two albums. Well, you had, I know you had it was two albums you did with with, with Epic. Yeah, and okay. yes, I did. I did the first two albums with Epic, and at at that time, okay, let me okay before I go into why I left Epic, yeah. the, the second album, the first single was Head Over Heels. It was time to choose the next single, which I had already decided. I wanted to be with you, and the record company president at the time, Dave Glue, I'll go ahead and name him, <laughs> called me in for a meeting. And uh, so my managers and I went in and he was like, Tone? <laughs> uh, tone. Um, <laughs> I got to tell you, uh, we, we don't think this song is a good idea. And we don't kind of want you to, you know, we're going to choose something else. I was like, I'm not, no, mm -mm, it's, it's going to be this one. We probably, we probably went back and forth for a good hour and I just wouldn't budge. It has to be with you. And I guess they thought they would teach me a lesson and show me because they, he, he literally said, oh, this song is so corny that only Stevie Wonder could get away with singing a song like this. Um, but I just wasn't hearing it. So you gotta, you gotta remember back in the days or during that time, there were at least 40 or so major labels. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, each of them with their own local promotion team that would service radio with vinyl, of course. And probably weekly, each of those 40 labels would release five to up to 10 artists or whoever they got or however many they got, one or yeah. two or three or four or five. And so we've got 40 labels with several artists going to the same radio station um, on music day, on Monday or Tuesday or whatever day that was. And the program director has five slots mm. to fill. So it's impossible that all those records are gonna are get played or get added. And um, so my, my record was serviced to radio with a blank label, white label that had handwritten information on it. And in my mind, in retrospect, that would have made that particular piece stand out. If it's in a pile of other records and you see this one blank label, yeah. well, what's this? And it was my song with you and it, it started to live. It was, it was slow. It was slow yeah. cooking. It's, it was, it was different. A, it was a simmer. It's a simmer. Mm. And then it started to just, you know, slowly creep up, slowly creep up. And then one day I was in, I was walking into my manager's office and we had a receptionist, but I, maybe she was in the restroom. She wasn't at the desk. Phone was ringing and I answered it because it seemed like that's what I was supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> I answered the phone and on the other side was, hello, um, this, this is Anita Baker. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking for Tony Terry. And Anita I was like, Baker. I was like, yeah, right. Okay. I'll, okay, I'll play. I'll play. Let's play. This is Tony. This is Tony. How are you? Listen. And she, she told me about, she, she was watching, she was in her bed asleep. And back in the days, there was the Arsenio Hall show. And then the yeah. show came on after that called The Party Machine, which I had done Arsenio, but I was on The Party Machine. Uh, and that was hosted by Nia Peoples, who was at one point married to Howard Hewitt. I was on that show. She said that I was sleeping in my bed and I was awakened by one of the most beautiful songs I ever heard in my life. And I had to find you because I haven't seen a video and I need to know what's going on. What's going on at your record company, baby? That's, that's her talking to me. <laughs> and, and I'm like... Oh, I still don't know that I'm talking to, I'm not sure that I'm talking to Anita Baker because I don't know her. I just, I know of her. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I had her, I had her album and it was one of my <laughs> favorites, but I, I, this couldn't be, this couldn't <laughs> be real. And so she said, she asked me, why was there no video? And I told her, well, Epic doesn't think the record's a hit. And so we, there's no video on the schedule and I don't, I don't think we're going to do one. She was like, what? Those people wouldn't know a hit if it hit them in the forehead. <laughs> and she said, I'm going to send you $50,000. And I want you to shoot the video for that song. In fact, I'm going to call my friend Blair Underwood because I want him to direct. And then I'm going to call, I'm going to, I'm going to give you my publicist, his services for six months, Jay Swartz. I was like, well, why? Why, why are you going to send me $50,000? Why, why, why are you going to call Blair Underwood? Why are you giving me your publicist for six months? And, and then what am I supposed, how, how do I pay you back? And she, she said, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. I just want you to blow up. Wow. And uh, I was like, okay, okay. You believed deal? it was her then? Well, I wasn't sure until the check came. 
<laughs> the check when the check showed up i was like oh snap <laughs> it's real um and so we did just that we went out to la met up with blair underwood he directed the video and if you've ever seen it if you've ever seen a with you video yeah yeah this is only one that's the one that he directed and that she executive produced was so i would still, call her was he still in la law was he still in la law when this was he might have been but this was his directorial debut he wow. never directed anything before with you and um and so it happened and then it started you know just it just wouldn't go away it, it just started after the video came out then the record really took off and then my record company was like ah oh, we knew this was a brilliant record from the very beginning <laughs> <laughs> i was like what and i got pissed but my managers told me i couldn't because i was the kind of guy that would say no you didn't Y'all told me not to do this record. In fact, you told me only Stevie Wonder could do it. I would have been that guy. Yeah. Um, but my managers were like, you can't do that. Let, let them have it. Let them think, you know, because you want them to be excited about working with you. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. If they, take the, if they take the credit, let them have it. I didn't like that one bit. I didn't because I knew that they didn't want the song. And so it turned out that the song was a hit and... It stayed on the charts probably longer. It, it, it set a record. I couldn't, I don't remember how long, but it stayed on a long time. Just would not go away. Like nine months or something like that. Wow. Something insane. It stayed on a very, very long time. And and so then we when we're now born, we have we've had She's Fly as a hit. We've had Lovey Dovey as a hit. We've had Forever Yours. That's from the first album. Forever Yours yeah. as a hit. Um, um, Head Over Heels was kind of mediocre, but With You took off. Um, Everlasting Love took off. Mm. And it was time to start working on my third album. And so now my managers were like, okay, so now y'all, you know, we, we're gonna, we need some commitment from you guys. We, we, we have established him now. So we really need y'all to turn it up. And they were somebody in the, in the heat of, heat of the moment said something like, well, if you think you can find a better situation for Tony, go get it, make it happen. And they did, they found a situation for me at Virgin. Um, and, and so I left, I left uh, Epic and signed to Virgin. Uh, and they had Janet Jackson <laughs> and after seven and was not was and a whole bunch of other huge groups at the time. and. Here I was, the new kid on the block again, feeling like I was starting over. And I started recording, and, and I, I, the, the most expensive video I ever did was with Virgin, I think it was a half a million dollars. Wow. They, flew me in a, they flew me in a helicopter to the top of a, a flat top mountain in, in um, New Mexico, which is called the Mesa. And they, they landed me and put me on this Mesa with a boom box on a helicopter and then they took off and began to circle around the mesa while I'm singing when a man cries you know and it was just beautiful beautiful uh, video but the helicopter got too close one time and almost blew me off and I had to hit the deck <laughs> and I had on white I had on white oh, it wasn't white anymore oh, <laughs> so they had to come get me and take me off the uh, off the mountain oh you went mute oh you went mute <laughs> Oh, Tony, you, 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 your voice, you went mute. You went. <laughs> I muted? Yeah, yeah, it did. Are we good? Can you hear me? I can hear you now, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't hear you. Okay, I can hear you now.
I cannot. Can you hear me now? Yeah, there you go. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah, it's uh, fine. So the, 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 the record company executive who was responsible for me being there, Gemma Corfield, she's British. And <laughs> she and my manager, one of my managers, who was a, a female, they did not like each other. There was two bosses. In fact, I think they might have even had a physical confrontation. Wow. And the result of their disagreement ended up in me being dropped. This was after my first album, uh, When a Man Cries, came out and did well. And they thought, okay, they gave me a bigger budget for the second album. And I was working on the second album in LA and I got a phone call. Um, it's a wrap. We're going home. And I didn't understand that. I didn't know what that meant. I was like, what, what, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in the studio cutting vocals. They were like, no, it's a wrap. And it just it took me a minute to process that. What do you mean? <laughs> Tell me, come out with it. What does this a wrap mean? <laughs> yeah. They said, Your, um, the, the record deal is over. And, and we're done. I was like, well, what happened? I didn't know. And it later came out in the watch that they had this conflict and my being dropped from Virgin had literally absolutely nothing to do with me, but because of my management and the upper management at the label had this confrontation with each other. And that's how I ended up being dropped. Wow. So I, I, I guess it's strange because in, in those days, especially in the nineties, you know, a, a record goes gold. That that's that was massive back then because they weren't spending as much. There was a, they gave artists a lot of time to release videos and and songs, right. and um, there was a lot of development. And, mm -hmm. and so I'm just so you you've you've had hits and consistency. You've got a lane. You've you've got an audience, and I was surprised. Epics actually decided to let you go. But I don't think but, they. I don't think they meant. I don't think they realized that you know. Even though that little statement was made in the heat of an argument, that my managers were going to take it and run with it. I don't think they realized that that was going to happen. But then, now, one. You know, when I think of Epic, we always talk about Michael, but it didn't seem. Um, it didn't seem like say Columbia, which was they were there was they had a, a sort of an, um, an urban sort of team out there it, it didn't seem like a lecturer as well that 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 really had a, a committed urban team it just seemed epic seemed to have had because of michael jackson really more of a pop we're going global kind of thing and so yeah i would have thought it might have been hard to get the type of support that you might have ne needed on epic compared to if you were in columbia it was it was hard for many reasons, one of the least of which was that the head of the A&R department was Johnny Gill's godfather. And uh, Hank, Hank, uh, I can't think of it, Hank Caldwell. Hey, that's 30 years later now, I can call <laughs> name. Hank Caldwell. He was Johnny Gill's godfather. And he talked about Johnny Gill every day. <laughs> and Johnny Gill was on Motown. <laughs> <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't even on our label, <laughs> but you know, he was, uh, he was working with, he's supposed to be working with me, but he talked about Johnny Gill all the time. So it was difficult to get their attention. It seemed like, hmm. 
but I did learn a lot. You know, I learned, I, I learned about developing relationships. I learned about, you know, one day I spent, or a couple of days, I spent at Epic literally calling every record store in the country, mom and pop and included, even if they only had one copy of my record in stock and saying, thank you. Wow. I called the radio stations, every single radio station that played my record, even if it was in super light rotation and they played it once a week, <laughs> I called and said, thank you. I got that from them. They're like, you have to, this is, this is about relationship building, yeah, yeah, branding. Yeah. And, and then I, and then one, a couple of days, I went into the studio and I did individual IDs for every radio station that I it was, it, it was literally 200 or 300 of them. So I would do, ever, it's been a long day. I'm going to take it kind of easy, relax a while. I want to hear some mellow music on Star 16. Or whatever the radio station was. Yeah, yeah. And, and I said, all the radio stations, their personalized version of wow. Everlasting Love. And it took Everlasting Love all the way up to the top. My goodness. I got that from Epic. They were like, you know, we got to do these things. We got to, this is, and this is what's going to separate you from, you know, the, the masses. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, we, 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 I mean, we, we, the stories of after Virgin, did you then think, was there ever missing of the stage after you've left Virgin? And what, what, what was your thought then after you left Virgin? Did you think, let me try and get another deal or let me go back to the stage? Or what, what I did. did. I did. I did try to get another deal. And I was not aware of until it was over that I had been blacklisted um, because we couldn't get a deal anywhere. And then I ended up getting an independent deal, but I was still working, you know, still working based off the hits that I had, but I couldn't get a deal anywhere. And I later, after, after I was no longer on the blacklist, I found out that I had been blacklisted and that's why I was unable to get anywhere. No one was gonna interested in touching me. How, 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 how long was that for? Did, did, for about you... 15 years. Wow. And I had no idea, I didn't even know. I didn't even know. <laughs> um, and then somebody in the music business was like, you know, you was blacklisted, right? I was like, what? Yeah, man, you, you, there were, nobody was going to touch you. I was like, well, why would that be? And how come I wouldn't know that? I didn't know. But for about that long, I didn't, you know, I just, no one was really interested, um, which I thought was, which I thought was unusual. But then I got signed to Golden Boy Records, who had a massive hit with RJ's latest arrival, Shackles on My Feet. Remember that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mary, Mary. Well, it was, well, Mary Mary covered it, but it was oh. back in the RJ's latest arrival was the original performer okay. of that song. And it was massive. And he signed me, Eddie Gurren. He said, he called, he, the, he called me the, his golden boy. It just so happened that the, his label was called Golden Boy Records <laughs> and that he was going to retire from me. Wow. And, and it didn't quite work out that way. Because when, I, when we finally put out the record, it was during the time that radio began to shift from R&B to rap more and more and more and more. And so there was really no spot for me to fill. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It, didn't, it didn't really work as well as we thought it would. But then Stevie Wonder's KJLH 
his radio station in Los Angeles, began to play um, a cut off of the album that was not a single called In the Shower. And it took off. It became this underground record that I wasn't even aware was happening. Mm. And, um, and then it started growing, it, 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 especially in the Southeast. It started growing this and it became a record that like with you, I couldn't not sing. I had to sing it. Hmm. And so, you know, then I went on to do a gospel album, which people thought, well, you made the switch. No, I didn't make the switch. I started out in church yeah, and I'm yeah, a singer. Yeah. I, I'm a singer. And so, you know, y'all called me a balladeer. I didn't say that. Hmm. I'm a singer. I sing R&B, gospel, jazz, classical. I mean, just whatever the job requires, I can get it done. Um, when With You came out, it overshadowed everything. People forgot that I sang Head Over Heels and She's Fly and Lovey Dovey. And I would do those songs and be like, oh, he did that too? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did that. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's just, it just really interesting because With You came out and all of a sudden I was a balladeer. Mm. Singer then, of love songs. Yeah, but what, what year did you sign with Golden Boy? What, what, what year was it on there? That, was, that would have been in... 2000 2001 okay did did you then find out was it because of your management company or yes that yes that i was blacklisted or that everything else went spiraling out of control was because of my because they took you from epic and they then they they're responsible for, for for virgin but they were also responsible for stealing from me stealing my publishing stealing you know my uh you know they would take they would also i'll go on tape saying they stole from me Wow. Uh, um, and I made a lot of money, millions, millions. Especially and with, with yeah, with, portion, with yeah. A good portion they stole, and they stole my publishing, and I didn't know it, and I was angry for years. And this is how I found out. Uh, well, first of all, in the beginning, before before I left my management company, I walked into one of my manager's offices, and my business bank book checkbook was on her desk, open which was unusual because I wasn't there to discuss any banking information and there was no reason for my checkbook to be out. And I happened to look at the ledger and it said, Andre's rent, Andre's rent, Andre's rent, Andre's rent, Andre's rent, who was my cousin, Andre's rent, Andre's rent, who I was paying for months, the whole entire time that, because he had an apartment at the same building that we were living in and I was paying his rent and I didn't know it. So I was like, well, why am I paying, why all these checks for Andre, his rent? And I'm paying him. Who, and then who decided that they were going to... And this, her response was, you had no business looking on my desk. <laughs> I was like, but that's my checkbook, woman. <laughs> and huh. that just, that led to the beginning of, it's just, it's just not going to work. And, the, and, you know, they were like, we made you. And you're going to be nothing without us. I was like, listen, you clearly have gotten it wrong. My parents made me. And I had a gift before I came to you. That had nothing to do with you. And it came from God. So you didn't make me. And you didn't make me. You didn't create me. You didn't make me. Mm. And they were like, oh, it's over for you. And <laughs> uh, just, it's, I just thought it was funny that people think that they have the power to, you know, block something that God said was going to be. Yeah. Nobody has the power to do that. Yeah. And I always believed that you don't have the authority to stop God from working. And yeah. I trust him more than I trust you. Um. I made a lot of mistakes. I learned some hard, valuable lessons. Mm. Uh, I, I did end up, you know, leaving that company 
because I knew that I couldn't go further with them because I knew too much. Yeah. But I didn't know how much they had taken from me. So moving forward a few years, I get a call from some or an email from some German producers who have gotten hold of some acapellas of mine. I don't know how they got them, but they wanted to do some remixes and they wanted my blessing. And I gave them my blessing right away. Then afterwards, I began to look up to see what this meant, what, what it was going to mean to me for them to put out these songs, you know. And uh, during my research, I found out that I didn't own the publishing to those songs. Not only had she taken my publishing, but she sold it. And then, then it had been sold again. It had been sold like three times. Um, someone owned it and that's what it was. So it didn't mean anything to me. And, and I called Ted Courier because I thought he was in on it. I was like, Ted, man, I thought we was cool, man. He was like, what are you talking about? Well, I was just doing some research because yada, yada, yada. And I found out that I didn't own my publishing. And then he said, that's why I haven't gotten a check in the past 20 years. I was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? He said, I haven't gotten a publishing check for 20 years. And now that you're talking about this, I now know why, because it was his wife and she, was taking his money too. He didn't know it. Mm. She's taking his money. She took his publishing and, now she, and then they got divorced and she's off living well and, and getting a wow. check. Well, because I, I refuted all that was going on, um, those checks stopped. They stopped coming because they, they, uh, um, the publishing, uh, the publisher or the administer of the, of the, of the royalty checks froze them until we could clear up who actually owns them and all that kind of stuff. So they're still, they're still um, in, on hold and hopefully soon that those funds will be released to their proper owner, which wow. is me. You know, it's, it's you know, um, it, yeah, it's really, it's heartbreaking to hear stuff like this. Um, I, unfortunately, I'm getting used to hearing these stories, um, but it's never easy to hear because it is the sense where you mentioned not having a, a, a mentor. And, and I don't know what it is about the music industry that it attracts the worst in people. Evil. It attracts evil. That there's an just, underbelly. Yeah. There's an underbelly in the music business, you know, that people don't talk about. There's a dark side to the music business that people simply do not talk about. And, you know, recently there was a young lady who came out talking about exposing, she was exposing people and, and exposing details about the music business, Miss Jaguar Wright. I don't know Jaguar Wright. Um, and I don't know that I've ever run into her. And I didn't realize that she was one of the original members of The Roots, I think. Mm, yeah, for yeah, sure. and, yeah, and she was exposing everybody, which I, I didn't know if what she was saying about the people that she was talking about was true or not. But then she started talking about things that happened in the music business and that she was aware of. And, and I knew those things to be true. Like I knew firsthand that those things were true. Mm. And so to me, that kind of gave some validity to the other things that she might've been talking about. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, had, I had been approached by people and invited to parties that, I went to, but because of my covering, yeah. I didn't. I didn't get pulled in. If you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was at the door of the dark side. 
Yeah. But I never crossed, never crossed the threshold. Yeah. And I have to, I have to believe that. I have to believe that I had guardian angels mm. protecting me. I really do believe it. I do to this day. I yeah. believe it, and I believe that I was preserved. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of people that I saw trying to um, get there, trying to break through, especially the girls. Mm. They get used up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they will get us. They might. They might even get all the way to the point where they think it's just about to happen, and then it doesn't happen. Yeah. And and then it's over forever. And then that person is ruined. And then yeah. and then the music business spits them out. Yeah. And then go and finds the next one that they're. Yeah. You know, that will service yeah. the room, service the room, if you will. Yeah. And you know, if that girl doesn't do it, then it's, she's out. And the next girl, because there's always somebody who's willing to do yeah. anything to get it. To get it. And yeah. you know, they'll. And when I say anything, I mean anything. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because, you know, because I wasn't advised, I wasn't given information. When people ask me, what would you, what kind of advice would you give to an up and coming artist? Uh, I would say, if you're female, don't do it. <laughs> be a songwriter, be a publisher, because that's really yeah. where the money is. And not only that, you know, girls have it especially tough. And if, if you're a guy, well, sometimes even guys fall into the trap. Yeah. But the best thing I could tell you to do is to understand that you're entering a business, show business. Yeah. And you have to have some kind of business acumen, or if not you, somebody who's with somebody, you who does, yeah, that yeah. will protect you. Um, because if you don't have the information, it would not be in you know someone else's um, favor to educate you. Yeah. If yeah. my intention is to, if, if my intention is to run game on you, and you come to me and you don't, well, not me. I'm just. Yeah. I went meet again. <laughs> Oh, I went. Oh, you you it went meet. Okay. It's unmuted. It's just yeah. doing that by itself. Oh, sorry, it's fine. Now yeah. I can't hear you. Oh, you can't. Okay. 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 I don't know why that's doing that. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Go ahead, whatever question you have. Yeah, I, no, I like to talk. I like to talk. No, so. no, no. I think what you're saying is, is true. And, and um, you know, I, for a brief moment, I was working at um, Edmonds Entertainment um, in in, um, in Hollywood, Tracy Edmonds, and they had mm -hmm. they had they had their record label, mm -hmm. and I was really excited. And and I remember I was uh, and I was doing um, in promotions, and I was helping them promote some of their new acts. John B was on the label, and and they had mm -hmm. groups of th third story, and I and I got invited to a number of industry parties and you know as part of being upon the label and I was seeing everybody and and I think I remember sitting at my desk and I felt like almost like a dark cloak come over me mm -hmm. um and I and I remember just crying out in, in, in the spirit just saying Lord save me and I you know I, and I you know it disappeared and then within a week I leave the US and I moved to the UK and, and then God was saying look they were going to eat you up. You were coming in there, you know, naive and all excited about your music and how, but they were just going to eat you up. Um, they were and eat you up and yeah, you out and yeah. You no I got invited to. I got invited to a dinner party 
um, by um, uh, who shall remain nameless. Yeah, um, uh, an industry executive in the Palisades, yeah. and uh, I was excited because I was told that you know I was going to be a party with a whole bunch of industry people. When I got there, there was nobody there yeah. except the, the gentleman, and I was like, well. Where's everybody? Where is everybody? I came for a dinner party. And uh, it just was weird. And while I was there, a celebrity that I knew who she was called him. And he had her on speakerphone while he, while he was in the room with me. But, he, but then he took her off speakerphone and went into another room. But then he put her back on speakerphone. And I heard him say, I heard her say, on speakerphone, you're going to make him a star, aren't you? And he said, well, we'll see what happens. I was like, oh, hell, <laughs> I got to get out of here. <laughs> and I, I, I was like, um, uh, you know, I forgot that I was supposed to um, be, in, be in another spot. <laughs> I, I didn't know if I was saying whatever I was saying was making sense to him or not, but I didn't care. I got to ask stuff out of here. Yeah, and, and so I left. I mean, but he was saying things like, you know, if you know, if you need money, just ask me. Just give me a call. You need you need a thousand dollars, five thousand dollars. Give me a call. I got you. I was like, oh well, thank you. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? <laughs> you don't even know me. So I I was too naive even to understand what was going on. But the yeah. thing that says go told me to go. Thanks for watching. Please remember to subscribe to the channel, but most importantly, to press the notification bell so that you can be notified when we do have a new interview. Loads to come, but thanks a lot for watching.